Lima, Peru, 1820. Centered around the Andes mountain region in South America, in what we recognize today as Peru, the Inca Empire reigned over the continent's west coast. The Incas are often referred to as a pristine civilization by scholars and anthropologists due to their hundreds of years of uninterrupted, unique civilization. In addition to impressive and tightly controlled systems of agriculture, the Incans were a society without money. By and large, they were a trading and bartering economy. And this worked out actually really well. Ironically, the Inca also sat upon quite a bit of gold and silver, which they used in art and ritual alike. It was this latter valuable resource that attracted the Spanish conquistadors to the Andean ranges sometime in 1526. The tragic and depraved history of the Spanish conquest of the Incan civilization is documented in episode 12 of Relic called The Curse of the Inca. It's pretty spooky and chronicles the downfall of this grand civilization at the hands of greed and racism. So if you're interested in the subject, check it out. It's super depressing and kind of scary. You'll love it. This episode picks up after the Incan Empire has unfortunately fallen. By the 1820s, rebellions against Spanish rule were blossoming all over Central and South America, rightfully so. Once the Spanish governments were overthrown, the newly liberated countries began to support each other in a continental effort to drive the Spanish away. From Chile, forces began a successful campaign to take Peru, slowly encroaching on the capital of Lima. Now, this was enough to make the Spanish viceroy very afraid, despite efforts from his predecessor to quash the insurgency. His first priority was, of course, money. With the rebellion at his doorstep, the viceroy had a lot of assets accumulated from various money-making agents of España, and one of the largest corporations operating out of Spain was the Catholic Church. By 1820, they had profited significantly from Peruvian colonization and the enslavement of locals to work the gold and silver mines in the area. The viceroy made an edict of consolidation in which the 50 churches within the territory surrendered their relics and treasures. The viceroy's goal was to move the treasure to friendlier Spanish-controlled Mexico, where it could be retained. In order to do this, he enlisted the help of a Canadian named Captain Thompson, commander of the British vessel, the Mary Deer. As the revolutionaries closed in on the capital, the Mary Deer sailed away with a small Spanish guard and a modest crew. In total, the collective trove was worth around $600,000. The crown jewels of the collection by far were two enormous golden statues of the Virgin Mary and child, as well as nearly 300 bejeweled swords and candlesticks. But as the crew set out, it soon became apparent that the Mary Deer was drifting off course, far away from Mexico. And if the Spanish crew had realized this in time, they may have saved themselves from being murdered in their sleep by Thompson's men. You see, the captain had decided that the terms of negotiations with Spain had changed, and he was in no mood to deliver all that wealth to Mexico. Instead, he sailed towards an isle off Costa Rica with a reputation for pirate plunder, Cocos Island. After a grueling few days in hiding, Thompson and his mutineers buried the treasure for safekeeping and returned to the high seas to plot their next move. Little did they know, the Spanish Armada was in hot pursuit, 
and the crew of the Mary Deer was tried for their crimes and executed. Well, all save for the first mate and Captain Thompson, that is. They themselves presented an offer in return for sparing their lives. In exchange for forfeiting the treasure, the Spaniards were to let them go. And so Thompson and his first mate took the Spanish to Cocos Island. But as soon as they landed, the survivors of the Mary Deer fled into the jungle, vanishing into the solitary island mists. They were never captured alive. But that's not where this story and the twisting tale of the Cocos Island treasure ends. In 1883, the Scottish writer Robert Louis Stevenson penned one of the best-selling adventure novels of all time, Treasure Island. The story follows a young Jim Hawkins, the son of an innkeeper, who gets swept up in a tale of mutiny, pirates, and conspiracy when a mysterious guest leaves behind a treasure map. This book did for pirates what the Great Train Robbery did for cowboys and the Wild West, introducing the populace to tropes such as mysterious tropical locales, talking parrot companions, and peg legs. Peg legs! Iconic. Various candidates have been put forth as real-world analogs for the eponymous Treasure Island, but in a letter to William Ernest Henley, poet, literary critic, and one-legged inspiration for the complicated villain Long John Silver, Stevenson mentions the island by name as the basis for his future novel. By the late 1800s, Cocos Island had already made a reputation for itself as a destination for swashbuckling and plunder. And even before Captain Thompson's bloody betrayal aboard the Mary Deer, this beautiful island off Costa Rica had served as prime destination to bury your booty. Though likely known to indigenous peoples for a good while, Cocos Island came to the attention of Portuguese explorer Juan Cabezas in 1526. In 1685, during the Golden Age of Piracy, the notorious Captain Edward Davis terrorized the waters around Central America and the Spanish colonies. A thousand men staffed his ship, the Bachelor's Delight, which plundered the city of Leon in Nicaragua, as well as the Panamanian coast, accumulating tons and tons of stolen loot, including 300,000 pounds of silver, 733 bars of gold, seven eggs of gold coin, and a quantity of church jewels and ornaments. Davis's pirate exploits were well documented by his doctor, pirate doctor that is, Lionel Wafer, who was also an avid naturalist, enamored with the flora and fauna of the New World. Wafer gave many depictions of Cocos Island, with its lush forests, rocky coasts, and imagery that no doubt crept its way into the works of Louis Stevenson's novel. 
Wafer's diary marks two journeys to the island to store stolen loot, one in 1684 and the other in 1702. Supposedly, the general location of these buried treasure chests is in Chatham Bay, where visiting sailors often left personal carvings in the rocks, but nothing has since been recovered. Captain Davis was not alone in using Cocos Island as a convenient dumping ground for his plunder. Another English pirate, and it's always the English, isn't it? Bennett Graham of the HMS Devonshire took his haul of 350 tons of gold bullion here as well. Graham was a tricky as a particular thorn in the side of the Spaniards. He had once intercepted a galleon bound for Acapulco in Mexico and managed to pull the wool over the Spaniards' eyes with his favorite trick, disguising himself as a fellow royal guard. Treasure hunters tried to locate Graham's loot using maps passed down after his death. They also had the help of surviving crewwoman, the lady pirate Mary Welsh, who happened to possess a map leading to the bounty. When Graham's crew was captured, Welsh was sent to the then penal colony of Australia, Mood, and upon securing her freedom, immediately went back to Cocos Island to try and find the treasure for herself. Unfortunately, Captain Graham had used natural landmarks, and since Caribbean islands are prone to serious storms that tend to alter the geography, any written clues were sadly useless, and the treasure of the Devonshire remains unfound. The last pirate of note is also the one who picks up Captain Thompson's story. And this one is a heavy hitter. Benito Bonito, and I know that name, right? Also known as Benito of the Bloody Sword, made frequent trips to Cocos Island. In 1819, he intercepted a mule train loaded with Spanish gold on its way to Mexico City. Bonito was often wont to employ disguises. Dressing himself as a mule driver, he managed to herd the treasure, which helps when it's self-walking, back to his ship, the Relampago. He departed for Cocos Island and hid the stolen gold and silver, estimated at over $2,500,000 and 300,000 pounds heavy, in the sandstone caves on the side of the island's rocky wafer bay. Probably named for the pirate doctor turned naturalist aboard the Bachelor's Delight. Bonito then strategically placed powder kegs around the entrance of the cave, lit a fuse, and blew the entrance shut. Bonito the Bloody Sword didn't just leave his cache of wealth on Cocos Island. He also found something else there, Captain Thompson and his first mate, who he took aboard his ship. Thompson ended up disappearing back into society, and his story, in many ways, echoes the opening to Treasure Island. On his deathbed, or so the legend goes, he passed down his secrets to a friend he'd made, a gentleman named Keating. In 1844, Keating teamed up with a captain named Bogue. Now, we only have the last names to work with here, people, so I'm doing my best. Using Thompson's notes as a guide, Bogue and Keating were supposedly able to recover Captain Thompson's treasure, but they didn't get very far with it in tow. Back aboard the ship, the crew staged a mutiny, and Keating and the captain fled with as much treasure in their pockets as they could carry. This is probably why their rowboat capsized. Now, nothing I've read has explicitly stated that the Trevor of Lima is cursed, but considering how many people have either been killed or died trying to possess it, often in the same way, probably cursed. Stories say that Keating managed to get rescued by a ship en route to Canada, and he ended up in Newfoundland, leaving behind his dubious tale before passing away. 
From his accounts, would-be treasure seekers have put together two different sets of instructions as left behind by Captain Thompson, and they are as follows. From Chatham Bay, follow the coastline of the bay till you find a creek. Where at high water mark, you go up to the bed of a stream which flows inland. Now you step out 70 paces, west by south, and go against the skyline, you will see a gap in the hills. From any other point, the gap is invisible. Turn north and walk to a stream. You will now see a rock with a smooth face, rising sheer like a cliff. At the height of a man's shoulder, above the ground, you will see a hole large for you to insert your thumb. Thrust in an iron bar, twist it around the cavity, and behind you will find a door which opens on the treasure. The second version is, disembark in the Bay of Hope between two islets in water five fathoms deep. Walk 350 paces along the course of the stream, then turn north by northeast for 850 yards, stake. Setting sun stake draws the silhouette of an eagle with wings spread. At the extremity of sun and shadow, cave marked with a cross. There lies the treasure. We know these directions thanks in part to Keating's landlord, Nicholas Fitzgerald, who never got around to manning an expedition to Cocos Island, but man did he have a story to tell. Fitzgerald passed along these treasure directions for both cataloging and preservation to the Nautical and Travelers Club in Sydney, Australia, which by the way, I tried to find and couldn't. So if anybody has any information, please reach out via email or Twitter. I live here and I can go there if it still exists. There's a solid chance that multiple directions were deliberately crafted to throw off the wrong sort from acquiring the treasure. Likewise, the treasure guide we do have may be somewhat accurate, but it's entirely possible that there was an omission, a key element removed that only those in the know, whoever they were, would possess. Keating's wife believed that there was a detail from the notes missing and that the treasure of Lima was hidden in a bay with a beach shaped like a crescent moon, obscured from a view of the ocean. A hermit who actually lived on the island, Heinz Hemeter, speculated that the treasure was not buried in sand, but in water. Specifically, it had been thrown into the pool of a waterfall. There were, of course, others who believed that the whole thing was bunk, and any written instructions left behind by captains or surviving crewmen were misdirections and hoaxes. But in 1845, a British exploring vessel discovered an iron chest in a cave overlooking Wafer Bay. Inside were hundreds of Spanish doubloons. So there was indeed a treasure on the island at one point anyway, and there could still be more out there, ripe for the taking. An unverified legend from 1880 that may just be another tall tale associated with the islands comes from the letters of a British soldier named Evan Jones, whose team had been stationed on the island. On one occasion when Jones and his company were out surveying, the Englishman came across a cache of loot stored in a crevasse in the cliff sides. This hoard included 300 silver ingots, a compass, and a broken brass cannon. This led the soldiers to blast open the trunk of a nearby cedar tree, which led to a cave housing a chest containing gold from Bonito Benito's plunder. In 1931, a Belgian treasure hunter reportedly uncovered a two-foot-tall golden statue of the Virgin Mary, which is in keeping with the catalog of the Lima treasure. Then there's the popular rumor that, in 1939, a local discovered a gold bar in a mountain stream near a waterfall, which adds credit to the theory that gold was concealed within a waterfall basin. 
Others speculate that more treasure, dropped by fleeing crewmen, has yet to be discovered in the waters and shoals of Chatham Bay. Cocos Island has bred many stories, and there are modern accounts still, with little verifiable historical accuracy, I should add, that tell of Incans fleeing the Spanish during the initial conquest and hiding their treasure on the island's Mount Iglesias. Their descendants, allegedly, fiercely guard this hoard to this day, hidden among the island's extensive network of caves. Sadly, this is more in line with the works of Robert Louis Stevenson. From 1889 till 1908, the Cocos actually called home to an adventurer, the Prussian August Gisler, who decided the best way to hunt down loot was to take up residence, owning half of the island. And shockingly, he was successful, somewhat. After spending thousands of dollars in excavation, Gisler did come across something six gold coins. Naturally, the island still attracts would-be treasure hunters and explorers, armed not with gunpowder and muskets, or talking parrots, but metal detectors and GPS systems. Far less romantic. Yet, who among us hasn't been drawn to the idea of buried treasure? Hell, it's the reason I started this podcast in the first place. The timeless allure of fortune is one driving element, of course, And at the risk of making a the real treasure was the friends we made along the way comparison, I think Robert Louis Stevenson got it best. What satisfaction would there be in just stumbling across the loop, if not for the adventure of it all? Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you want to shiver my timbers, you can leave a four or five star rating or review in Apple Podcasts. You can also check out our exclusive Patreon content at patreon.com relic. Connect with me and argue with me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod or send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. We'll be winding down the season, but we have at least two more episodes to look forward to in the near future. I'm also working on a super secret narrative project. So if you or anybody you know has narration or audio experience, I'm looking for a pretty diverse international talent pool. Hit me up. Next time, Rennes-la-Château was always a quiet village, tucked out of the way. Unremarkable, but in the late 1800s, a mysterious priest appeared in town. And from that point on, this sleepy French village would never be the same. In our next episode, gossip, conspiracy, and perhaps a lost treasure that the Catholic Church doesn't want you to know about. The adventure continues.